Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. That language very much, and in the culture in which we live, we tend to think of the time from Thanksgiving Day until December 25th as the Christmas season, or that's Christmas time. In fact, you probably can already anticipate that starting on December 26th, the decorations and all of the accoutrements of Christmas will begin to come down. The Christmas lights and the ornamentation and everything in our city and in our shopping areas and all of that will begin to be disassembled and removed. The radio stations will go back to their regularly scheduled non-holiday programming on December 26th in many cases. But for centuries now, for centuries, Christians all over the world have celebrated Christmas as a brief season, and actually the 12 days of Christmas, this is where this comes from, celebrated Christmas as a brief 12-day season that begins on Christmas Day, and the season that builds up to that, the season that leads to Christmas Day is traditionally known as Advent because it's a season of spiritual preparation. It's a season for us to begin to anticipate the arrival of Jesus, both in the story that built up to Christmas and Jesus' first coming, and our own anticipation of Jesus' return, Jesus' second coming to gather his people to himself. Now, if you have not heard of Advent before, if this has not been part of your observation or the way that your family has celebrated this holiday, it's totally okay. I'm not telling you that you've been Christmasing wrong or anything like that. But what I am saying is that there is a blessing that we might miss. There's an opportunity here for us that we could miss out on if we don't spend some time preparing ourselves spiritually for the coming of Christmas. So during the video that played as uh, Dave and Paula were making their way to the front a minute ago, I chose that beautiful piano rendition of the old hymn, Joy to the World, that you have likely heard before. I wonder if you can remember these words from the first stanza of Joy to the World. The song says, let every heart prepare him room. And I want to tell you that's what Advent aims to do. What we're trying to do together in this season is to slow down and to focus, to pay attention and to prepare room in our hearts so that when Christmas Day comes around, the meaning and the celebration of that event might be that much more meaningful for us, have that much more impact. And I need this season of preparation. I need this anticipatory season. Because I've noticed that slowing down is not exactly my strong suit. I don't know if that's true for you or not. I noticed it again this week. I I felt like this week I was just rushing everywhere I went. I took my kids to school every morning like I always do. But there was this one day this week where it seemed like everything out there was just moving slower 
than usual. We got to go to two different campuses these days, and so there's a lot of commuting, but you know how it is in this area. You got the trains, and you got the stoplights, and you got the traffic, and you got the roundabouts, and you got the congestion, and all of that, and you, you know how it is, whether you're on the Keller side or the Saginaw side or wherever, it's just going to be busy. And on that particular day this week, it just seemed like I kept getting behind these drivers who got out on the road that morning and then totally forgot why they were there. You ever had that experience, you know? I mean, drivers who fired up the car, backed out of the driveway, pulled out of the neighborhood and thought to themselves, where am I going today? You know, like, that, like they had no particular place to be except right in front of me. And so everything was just crawling. It got so bad. The distractions out there got so bad that I kept getting distracted from the audio book that I, was, that I had checked out from the library. I've been trying to make my way through this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I've been listening to it on two times speed, trying to get through it faster. This is my second time to check out this book because the, the first time my library loan expired before I could make time to finish the ruthless elimination of hurry. And despite my best intentions, I have not made much headway in eliminating hurry from my life. Maybe you've done better, maybe you've done different, but it's challenging in this, in this day and age, isn't it? I mean, we live in a time, we live in an age when efficiency is highly praised and valued. We live in an age when speed is idolized. We even have names for it. We call it hustle culture, you know? Like you're supposed to be somebody who's hustling, and maybe you have a side hustle or two side hustles, the kind of thing that just keeps you busy and productive and speeding around all the time. But we're not good at waiting. We're not good at just anticipating, being still. Because the problem with waiting is that it feels like when you're waiting, nothing is happening, right? Feels like nothing is getting done. And it's an opportunity when something could be getting done. Waiting doesn't feel like progress. In fact, in a world where it feels like everything is constantly moving faster and faster, waiting feels like falling behind, doesn't it? I mean, waiting feels like you're actually losing a step, like you're not keeping up with the pace that everybody expects you to go. And right from the start, this is why Advent is so unnatural for us. Because Advent is all about waiting. Advent is about putting ourselves in a headspace and a heart space where we're waiting in anticipation for God to do what only God can do. But waiting on God, wow, that could take a while, right? Waiting on God is not a new struggle. Waiting on God is a wrestling that has been going on since ancient times. And in fact, if we listen together to the voices and the testimonies and the writings of ancient believers, people from decades and generations and centuries and millennia before us, what we're going to find is that in the waiting, there is an opportunity for us to change and maybe in a way that we need it. And so this morning, I want to invite you with me to focus our attention on a passage from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd be thrilled for you to open that up. Or if you can, you use the Heritage app that Marty mentioned earlier, you can just click where it says Bible down on the bottom row, and it'll take you right to this passage that we're using today. We're in Isaiah chapter 64. 
And when you get there, you need to know that Isaiah is an ancient book of the writings of a prophet who spoke on God's behalf. 2,800 years ago, this thing began being written. And Isaiah, Isaiah addresses three distinct time periods in the history of the kingdom of Judah. Now, I, I know history might make some of you make your eyes roll back a little bit. I'm going to take just a couple of seconds here. I want to give you a, just a quick bringing up to speed so you'll have an idea of where this fits in the historical narrative. Okay, so the first section of Isaiah focuses on a time period in the area we would not now call southern Jerusalem where the kingdom of Judah, the people were experiencing prosperity, they were experiencing peace, and so in the midst of all of that, they were not very acutely aware of their need for God. Everybody was kind of looking out for themselves, looking out for number one, doing their own thing, and forgetting about their promises and their obligations and their commitments to God and to the people that God sees in need. And so there was this prophet, Isaiah, who kept warning the people of Judah, if you don't care for the poor among you, if you don't care for those who are suffering, if you don't care for those who are marginalized, then God is going to remove protection from you and allow you to be invaded and conquered by an invading army. If you don't feel like it's important to honor God with your life, then God's going to let you experience some of the consequences of that. And that happened in 587 B.C., the kingdom of Babylon with their army comes marching west and conquers the kingdom of Judah, which brings us to the second section of Isaiah. The second section of Isaiah is written during the time period when most of the able-bodied people from Judah had been taken away as captives. They'd been taken into exile. They were living in a land where they didn't want to live. They were taken to Babylon and forced to live there. And somehow, in the midst of all of that difficulty, Isaiah kept reminding them, if you'll be patient, if you'll wait on the Lord, God is going to restore us again. Which brings us to the third section, the historical section of Isaiah, where the Babylonians actually get conquered themselves by the Persians. And the king of Persia says, all of you who were from Judah, who were exiles living here, are welcome to go home if you'd like to go. And so the people from Judah make their way back from Babylon, back to their home country. But when they get there, everything's been leveled. Everything's been destroyed. The temple is no more. Their homes are no more. The palaces are no more. Everything is gone. And on top of that, they're surrounded by intimidating other nations who are encroaching on their territory, people who are, are not encouraging them to continue with this rebuilding project. And so the exiles have been restored to their homeland, but they have not yet been completely restored to what they once were. The story is not resolved yet. It's an already but not yet kind of thing. They've already experienced some of God's deliverance by being released from their exile and their captivity, but they haven't yet received the complete fulfillment of God's prophetic promises. And that brings us to the passage we're looking at together today. Because Isaiah 64, Isaiah 64, we, we have a prayer that's penned by either Isaiah himself or one of his disciples. And in this prayer, this prayer is a plea to God that's asking God, begging God, God, would you intervene on our behalf? We're back in our homeland, but there's nothing here for us. We have to start from scratch, and there's all of these 
threats around us that don't want us to succeed. God, would you intervene in a tangible and dramatic way? And so we're going to read this passage together in a moment, but as we do, there's not going to be any single one of us that's going to have trouble relating to the sentiment that's being expressed. Because what the writer is doing is begging for God's attention. The writer is begging God to notice Judah's situation and come and do something to make it better, to improve the situation. And for most of us, prayers like that are the most common kind of prayers we have prayed. At the Christian college where I was fortunate to study, there were two different areas on campus, both of them indoor areas that were designated and titled the quiet place. And you could go to these two different areas on campus, and there were comfortable areas to sit and have time in silence and solitude. There was areas where you could be alone and be still before God. And in all of these different small rooms with these sitting areas, there were these prayer journals. And people would sit in there, and they would pray, and many times they would write about what was going on in their life and what it was that they wanted to communicate to God. And I believe the college years can be particularly tumultuous for virtually everybody, but if you were to go back and sit and read through some of those anonymous prayers, through some of the stories that people were recording in those prayer journals, what you would see time and time again is people bringing their problematic situations, their hurts to the Lord and saying, God, would you do something about this? God, help me. Help me get through this. Help me find a way. Help me to be able to succeed. Provide me some relief. People were bringing their problems to God and hoping that God would respond. And that's what's happening in Isaiah 64. And so this morning, I'm going to read this prayer, and I'm going to invite you, as I read it, to assume a prayer posture, whatever that means for you. Some of you may choose to bow your head. You may choose to close your eyes. I, I, would, I would recommend, if you would consider it, just sitting with your palms open. It's kind of a, a, a posture of availability and readiness to God's Spirit. But to assume a prayer posture, I'm not going to put the words up on the screen the way we normally do. I don't want you to, to read along this morning. We're going we're to dive into this text some more. But I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and let the emotion of this prayer wash over you, over you so that you can feel what the people of Judah were feeling. From Isaiah 64. If only you would tear open the heavens and come down. Mountains would quake, quake before you. Thank you. 
inevitably. As I studied this text earlier this week in preparation for today's message, I read this text in community with some other preachers who were also going to be preaching from this text this week, and we wanted to reflect on this together and share our initial impressions. The first thing we noticed was that initial plea to God in the first verse. Isaiah says, if only you would tear open the heavens and come down which is a request for a dramatic intervention. And as I pondered this passage with these other preacher friends of mine, we all agreed, I recognize that kind of prayer. I know that kind of prayer. In fact, as preachers, this is the kind of prayer that people ask us to pray a lot. On more than one occasion, just in the past two months, I've been summoned to emergency rooms here in Tarrant County, and I've gone, gotten there and found heritage members lying there on the gurney, unconscious and unresponsive, and family members who were there with tears in their eyes and panic in their voices and shaking hands, and they begged me, Brock, Brock, would you pray? Pray that God would do something to help. Pray that God would tear open the heavens, they might as well have said. This is the kind of prayer that we are familiar with in crisis, in emergency. This is the kind of prayer we know. This is the kind of prayer that the world news elicits from us on a, on a daily basis. I took note just yesterday of the news alerts that popped up as notifications on my smartphone. Just over the course of one day, my phone provided a litany of reasons for me to beg God to have mercy and to intervene. It started with the report of an earthquake followed by a tsunami alert in the Philippines. And after I dismissed that notification, I noticed a notification about the end of the ceasefire between Israeli defense forces and Hamas. And then after I dismissed that notification, I saw that there had been an explosion at a Catholic mass service in the Philippines. And as I dismissed that notification, I saw that there had been a terrorist attack at the Eiffel Tower and three people had been stabbed. I saw as I dismissed that notification that the bombardment of Ukraine was continuing in new and devastating ways. And all of that was just yesterday, just one day worth of alerts of news on my phone that makes me want to pray. God, would you tear open the heavens and do something? God, would you put a stop to some of this? God, would you help? We know these kind of prayers. We know the kind of prayer that tries to elicit a response from God. And the people of Judah knew these kind of prayers too. These were the kind of prayers that their ancestors prayed while they were making bricks without enough materials as slaves in Egypt. These are the kinds of prayers that their ancestors prayed when they were wandering in the desert during the Exodus. In fact... It's the knowledge of how we've prayed to God and God has responded in the past. It's our knowledge of God's track record. It's our knowledge of God's ability that leads us to pray these kind of prayers in the moment, right? I mean, we know what God has done. And we know some of what God can do. And so we find ourselves praying, God, would you do it again? 
God, would you open up the heavens? Isaiah says, God, when you accomplish, this is in the prayer we just read, verse 3, when you accomplished wonders beyond all of our expectations in the past tense, when you came down, the mountains quaked before you. He's saying, I know what happens when you show up. Isaiah says, from ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God but you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him, which is to say, there is no other being. There is no other power that can do what you can do. Isaiah, the writer of this prayer, is recognizing God's ability and God's history. These are the kinds of prayers that people pray when they've seen God show up in the past. These are the kind of prayers that people pray when they know what God is capable of doing. And the people of Judah had a lot of stories about what God had done and what God was capable of doing. The people of Judah had been handed down stories, some of the stories that are recorded in these older books of the Bible for us. They'd been handed down stories about moments when they had their backs against the sea and God parted the sea in half so they could walk across on dry ground. They had moments of times when they came up to a river and God stopped the flow of the river so they could walk across on dry ground. They had stories of moments when they were hungry and suddenly bread, manna, appeared on the ground out of nowhere. They had stories of times when they were thirsty and water came gushing out of a rock. They had stories of times when the walls of their enemies fell and when the sun stood still. They knew about God's history and they knew about God's ability and you and I have some stories like that in our family too. We have some stories, some of the stories that have been handed down that are still our stories as well, but we have some of our own stories, stories of healing. Just in the last couple of months, we've seen people connected to the Heritage family who, by all accounts, by all accounts, were on death's door and have somehow turned around from that, and we praise God for that. We have stories in our family of moments of provision when we weren't sure how things were going to turn out. We have stories of moments when if the Lord had not shown up, things would look a lot worse than they do right now. We have stories in our family of broken relationships that have been mended and addictions that have been overcome. And when you have a collection of stories like that, when you know what God can do and what God has done, that knowledge is supposed to help you build and strengthen your faith, right? Like it ought to work that way. But can I speak real plainly with you? I think if we're honest, I think if we're honest, sometimes our knowledge of what God can do and our knowledge about what God has done can leave us questioning what's taking God so long to do it again. Let me say it plain here for you. I want to make sure you... Sometimes our experience with God in the past... Sometimes the stories that have been handed to us. Sometimes our awareness of God's omniscience and omnipresence. Sometimes that can leave us mysteriously wondering, why doesn't God seem to see the problems that I see? What's taking God so long to act again? And we wonder that because we're watching the news, right? Because we see the problems. We watch the news and we see how other people treat one another. 
We see how in this world, the vulnerable and the helpless get exploited time and time and time again. We see how in this world, the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer and the divide keeps growing and those who were already suffering suffer some more. We see how in this world people suffer from mental illness and addiction and disease that they didn't choose and that they can't get away from, and it breaks our hearts. And in the midst of all of that, we hear the news about how there are all of these world powers who are saber-rattling and trying to overcome one another and topple one another, and they're forming alliances against one another, and there's constantly the threat of war and battle and violence. And in the midst of all of that, we see that in every hemisphere of the world, on every continent, save Antarctica maybe, we see refugees who are being displaced from their homes and trying often unsuccessfully to find a place to just simply live a quiet life. And then we see places that are already difficult to live, like Libya and Morocco, and suddenly there are flash floods and earthquakes that topple buildings and send walls of mud and water and debris flowing through highly populated areas and people lose their lives. And then we look around at our own circumstances and our own lives and the, closest, the lives of the people who are closest to us and there's problems there too. And we see all of this and it all builds up and it all snowballs on top of itself and it all mounts together and it makes the kind of person who believes in God's power want to say, God, look! Don't you see? Do you see what we're looking at? Gaze on us. Notice us. Do something. How long do we have to wait? Which is the constant refrain, the constant message of the prophets. From Elijah to Isaiah to Ezra, the message is this. The Lord is coming. The Lord is about to act. But for now, we have to wait. And that's the part I'm terrible at. That's the part I'm not good at. It's probably the part you're not good at either, because in this, in this climate, how would you get good at waiting? How would you possibly become somebody who's good at waiting for an indefinite response, an indefinite amount of time? How would you become good at waiting for that? Waiting is the part we're not good at because we want God to act on our terms and we want God to act on our timeline. But Advent is a season to remember that just because God doesn't work that way doesn't mean God doesn't work. Advent is an opportunity for us to slow ourselves to live at a different pace to live with a reduced amount of panic and an increased amount of peace. Advent is a moment for us to say, he's got the whole world in his hands. He makes everything beautiful in his time. Advent is a time for us to slow our anxiousness, our hustle, our fear, and our worry and to remember God's promise. The promise from one whose other promises have always come true. 
I explored a lot of different ways to finish out this sermon today. I had outlined different ideas for the closing, the landing of the plane, they might say. But in the end, I decided what I would rather do is to read for you a few paragraphs about Advent from one of my favorite preachers, a guy named Brian Zond. And so I'm going to read to you a couple of paragraphs that he's written about this very topic, this problem that we have with waiting. And I'm going to ask you again to assume a receptive and focused posture, possibly to close your eyes so that you can give your attention to the gravity of what he's describing here. Here's Brian Zond. We have been tricked into believing that God is mostly found in the big and the loud, when in fact, God is almost never found in the big and the loud. The ways of God are predominantly small and quiet. The ways of God are about as loud as seed falling on the ground or bread rising in the oven. The ways of God are almost never found in the shouts of the crowd. The ways of God are more often found in trickling ears, tears, and whispered prayers. We want God to do a big thing. But God is planning to do a series of small things. We're not, we are impressed by the big and the loud, but God is not impressed by that. We are in a hurry, but God is not in a hurry. We want God to act fast, but God's speed is almost always slow. And so we are waiting for God to act, but I would suggest that we are not so much waiting for God to act as we are waiting to become still enough to discern what God is doing. I'm going to read that sentence again. We are waiting for God to act, but I would suggest that we are not so much waiting for God to act as we are waiting to become still enough, quiet enough, to discern what God is doing. God is always acting because God is always loving his creation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always inviting us into their house of love. But when we are consumed by anger, when we are harried by anxiety, when we are driven by impatience, then we are blind and deaf to what God is actually doing in the present moment. Waiting for God to act only seems like waiting for God to act. God is always acting. Because God is always loving the world and always giving birth to something. Waiting for God to act is actually waiting for your soul to become quiet enough, contemplative enough to notice what God is doing in the obscure and forgotten corners far from the corridors of power or wherever you think the action might be. We want God to get in to, to act in the imperial capital of Rome, 
But God first acts in a stable on the edge of Bethlehem. We want God to act in Washington, D.C., but God first acts in the quiet corner of your own living room and your own heart. I bring up Brian Zahn to you this morning in part because I want to commend to you a resource to guide your own heart through Advent. Brian Zond has written a small devotional book that is called The Anticipated Christ. You can find it on Amazon, anywhere you buy books, and it's pretty cheap. And the daily devotionals that begin today, on December 3rd this year, because of the way the Sunday calendar lined out, the devotionals begin today, and they, they take just a couple of minutes to read every day. But this is a way to guide your heart through the season of Advent. I'm doing this myself, and so that's why I recommend it to you. But I wonder if you can hear the gravity of what he's suggesting here. That when we think we're waiting on God to act, what we're actually needing is an awareness of how God is already acting. That what we, what we think we're looking for is not what we're going to find. What we think we're looking for, this big intervention, this ripping open of the heavens, this tearing apart the mountains, is not how God is going to engage with the world's problems, but that God's engagement looks like yeast working its way through dough. It's quiet. Happens in the stillness. That God's engagement in the world is like seed being scattered on the ground. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that the God who created the entire universe and all of its formations and all of its beings and all of its life, the God who sustains all of that by continuing to make the sun rise every morning and to set every night and continues to provide rain, can you imagine that that God who loved the creation enough to give his own life in a human form so that nobody would have to be separated from him. Can you imagine that that God would forget us or not hear our cries? Can you imagine that we would have to pray a prayer that says, God, look at us. God, notice us. God, do something. God, show up. Can you imagine that God would suddenly remember? Oh, I forgot about them. I can't imagine it. I think it's much more likely that when I am waiting for God's intervention, the main struggle is that I just haven't noticed it yet. I haven't welcomed it yet. I haven't received it for myself, and I'm not looking in the right place. And so the question for us is, are we going to allow God to work on our hearts? as we anticipate Christmas, where we want God to come and fix everything in a flash and swing a bunch of weight and power around? Are we going to allow God to do the small work, the quiet work, the silent work of changing who we are from the inside out? 
the old Christmas song said, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. That's Advent. That's the story we're living into. And so I wonder, as we anticipate Christ's coming into our lives, as we anticipate Christ's effect on our circumstances, as we anticipate Christ's answer to our problems, as we anticipate Christ's concern for our pains, is it our expectation, is it our demand that God come and do our bidding? Or could it be that God might be inviting us into the faith-building experience of trusting Him as we walk through a valley, through the dark, into what is unknown to us. This is what Advent is all about.